welcome to Reed Scholars Live. I'm your host and current president of Reed Scholars, Dr. Mary Fleming. Today we are joined by Ann Newland. Ann Newland is originally from Omaha, Nebraska, and is currently CEO for North Country Healthcare in Flagstaff, Arizona. She received her medical degree from the University of Nebraska Medical Center before completing her residency in internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Tennessee, Memphis. Before completing our fellowship in minority health policy and becoming a Reed Scholar, Dr. Newland spent eight years at the Navajo Area Indian Area Services in Cayenta, Arizona. Dr. Newland focuses on improving clinical workflows, increasing care quality, and supervises collaborative research projects across the North Country Healthcare Network. Welcome today, Dr. Newland. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Newland. How are you? Doing okay. A little, a little tired today, but, but otherwise doing okay. Oh, I can imagine. So tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing now. What's your day-to-day -day look like in the, the last few months? Well, it's been pretty busy, uh, as I'm sure it has been for everybody else in healthcare. And I'm not in a hospital situation. Um, we're at a community health center, a multi-site community health center here in um, Northern Arizona. And um, we've done everything from collaborate with county health departments to help set up drive-through testing. We've set up testing protocols at, at three of our 19 sites, basically trying to hit, have one dedicated testing site per region. Um, We've shifted a lot of our clinical operations so that now about 40% of our encounters are via telehealth um, rather than in person, although we still provide um, curbside visits and visits within our, our clinics. Yeah, the, the line I tell people is you can't push pause on pregnancy. We've still got to see those, those mamas and we've still got to yes, see those you. babies. Um, but, but how do we do that in the safest way possible for both our patients and for the staff? So there's been a lot of wrangling of PPE and protocol development, and it's been a very um, intense and interesting time. And I know you told me that you are still coming into the office every day and tried to make sure that you could continue to employ as many people as possible. And so being in a leadership position, I know that was probably an ongoing conversation at the beginning. Um, tell me more about that thought, that thought process and how that has played out over the past few months to weeks, or weeks to months, rather. Yeah, no, thank you for that question. So we made a decision early on as a, as a management team that we were not going to furlough anybody, we were not going to lay anybody off, that um, we had work for anyone that wanted to work. And um, we've done that in a combination of having some folks on our sites, because um, you can't take care of people without physically being there. And even for telehealth, um, for us to be able to bill for our telehealth encounters, the provider has to be at one of our clinics, at one of our operating sites. So um, that was something that had loosened up a bit uh, uh, due to COVID-19 that Arizona Medicaid access um, didn't require us to do point to point for telehealth. That is a provider in one of our clinics um, connecting with a patient at another of our clinics. Now we can do telehealth to home. So the yeah. provider can be based in one of our clinics, but the patient could be at home or, or any place. Um, and uh, you know, we, 
are fortunate to be in a good cash position. Honestly, um, we're, we're probably in our, our best cash position that we've been in 20 years. Um, part of that is from the payroll protection program. So we were able to get a loan through that. Um, but because we're able to maintain clinical encounters and just be thoughtful about managing our clinical staff, um, um, I feel like we're in good shape to weather this. And in fact, at the beginning of May, we gave all of our staff a 3% bonus. Oh, wow. So in the past year, we'd had to hold off on raises and, and even cost of living adjustments um, because we had some overwhelming medical expenses. Um, North Country is self-insured and you know, one, once in a while, you're just gonna get hammered with medical expenses and that happened to us last year. Um, but because we're coming out of that, um, and we had a good cash position, I felt like it was a good time for us to get some additional money in the hands of our, um, of our team and, and do it at a time when many of them need it the most. Okay. And what I've told folks is we just need to underscore the community and community health center mm. that um, keeping people employed is one of the biggest contributions we can make aside from health services. Um, because in many of our, for many of our employees, they might now be the sole breadwinner for their family if uh, a spouse or other family member has lost their, their job. And, and speaking of kind of everything is different state to state, right? So we know the burden of disease is different in each state. The response to COVID-19 overall has been different in each state. So being in Arizona, tell us a little bit about um, the burden of disease there in the state and you know the cities and then of course you have you know the um, uh, Indian Health Services populations there as well so can you tell us a little bit more about that sure so you know Arizona um, uh, it's hit the national news uh, for the number of cases that have been um, um, going on in, in, uh, in the Navajo reservation and you know, this is very personal for me because I uh, started my, my medical career um, on the Navajo Nation in a community called Kayenta, um, and that has become the epicenter of the COVID-19 um, pandemic, uh, epidemic on the Navajo Nation. Um, so it started, uh, they, they think it really started with a church gathering in a community mm -hmm. called Chilchimbito, and um, that's about 27 miles away from Kienta. The reservation is divided up into service units uh, and that's medical service units. So there's usually a hospital or a major clinic available serving that area. So I know Chilchimbito very well. And, um, you know, uh, my partner also does uh, occupational therapy services in various schools on the reservation. So we have a lot of personal and professional connections um, in those communities. And between the two of us, we know five people who died um, due to COVID-19. And you know, we're talking about a special education teacher, um, a school bus driver, uh, a school PE teacher, um, a contract health worker. That's, that's basically a, a payment system within IHS. Um, for services outside the reservation. And um, my former next door neighbor 
died secondary to COVID-19. She'd been the head of uh, medical records and had retired. She was a breast cancer survivor. Um, so, so these losses are, are, are felt very directly and acutely. Um, and uh, I, I don't think people fully appreciate how, how devastated um, the communities up there are because of the, because of COVID-19. And there's a big difference in the way the cases are reported. Just last week, um, a big article hit the Arizona Republic about data of the Navajo Nation cases not getting reported within the state. So if you went to the state website and tried to look at cases by zip code, the zip codes on the Navajo Nation were grayed out. And, and I don't know the full reasons for that. I'm sure there's a story there, but I don't know what it is. But it kind of skews the way the, um, the data's been presented. And if you looked at a map of Arizona just by county, you would see that the bulk of the cases were in Maricopa County. That makes sense. It's, it's where Phoenix is. Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the United States. It's not a surprise that they should have a very high number of cases. But if you look at the map a little differently and look at the counties by the cases per 100,000, the picture changes dramatically. Mm. And the concentration of cases are in Coconino County, Apache County, and Navajo, Navajo County um, up in the northeastern part of the state. And um, the bulk of the cases are concentrated in the tribal communities, if you dig, if you dig a little deeper. Um, these are communities that are communities of color and uh, communities where there's higher poverty rates. You know, most folks don't think about, um, when they think about Coconino County, they think about Flagstaff, um, which is a university town um, of about 70,000, 80,000. Um, but it's also a community that incorporates parts of the Navajo and Hopi reservations. And um, about 27% of the population of Coconino County is um, Alaska Native or American Indian. In Navajo County, it's 45%. In Apache County, it's 75%. And the poverty rates go from 15 to just under 30 to 37% in those, in those counties. So this gives you a different picture of the, of the crisis and some of the drivers for the crisis. So just for um, our listeners who are unfamiliar with um, how the reservations are on the setup seems very trivial, but to get a better picture of a day-to-day -day, um, life for some of our, um, some people who live in those areas because and say all this to say, so COVID-19, one of the many things that it's done is highlighted these health disparities, right? And so it's highlighted these disparities in access um, and, and many other things, but one of them in access. Um, so talk about just the baseline um, access for people who live in these communities. Um, and you, you talked a little bit about the poverty level, but can you expound on that just a little bit, a little bit more so we know why these things are exacerbated in these populations? Right. So um, if, I, if I had to pick one word to describe some of the challenges on the reservation, it would be distance. So the distances that people have to travel 
to get from where they're living to where there are services. And that can be services to get gas, services to get water, services to, to get healthcare or to buy food. Um, you know, it's not unusual to travel hundreds of miles um, to, get, to get basic services. So uh, if somebody is living, um, you know, it's kind of catchy for, for folks to live off the grid. Well, a lot of people on the Navajo reservation already live off the grid. So they don't have power. Um, there's lots of times uh, working up there that I helped arrange for somebody to get a solar powered refrigerator to help keep their medications and to keep food. Um, and a lot of folks don't have running water. They will often haul water. Um, so that means they've got like a 600 gallon tank. Um, on the back of a pickup truck that you'll drive into a station and and you'll fill up your your water tank just like you'd fill up um, the gas tank on your on your car and um, so they'll drive drive water home and then um, sometimes people will have the hookups so that you can actually um, have running water in the house so that you can turn on a tap or you can flush a toilet but not everybody does. Um, some people rely on outhouses and then um, are very careful in the way they use the water because it's such a precious uh, resource to have potable water. Um, you know, uh, uh, our, we operate a program, we operate the Ryan White uh, uh, HIV um, Part B program for Navajo Nation. And um, some of the team members helped create hand-washing stations uh, to deliver to folks that were basically made out of five-gallon buckets, similar to what you'd have on a river trip. So, you know, Flagstaff, were close to the Grand Canyon, close to the Colorado River, where people do um, a lot of adventuring, and you have to maintain good hand hy hygiene on those trips, too. Um, and they will often have a setup of two buckets, two five-gallon buckets, and a, a foot pump that you can use to basically get the water to run. So um, I'll, if you're curious, I'll, I'll share some pictures with you, but uh, they've, they've set up those to distribute to families so that they've got something that's simple and reusable. Some folks have taken um, large uh, uh, detergent containers that have a little push button. They fill them with water and use those as a hand washing station. So then you're not reusing water. Right. Because a more traditional way to wash hands is, you know, just like we would have had back in the 1800s, you'd have a wash basin in a room, um, but then people tend to reuse the water until somebody checks it out and, and replaces it. And this is a way to help um, refresh the water. So those are a, a couple of examples. Um, one, of my, one of my former patients um, lives outside of a community called Denahozo, and um, I'm in, I'm still in close touch with her daughter. We're, we're friends now, not just, you know, doctor and patient. And um, her mom is oxygen dependent. They have a um, oxygen concentrator at home, but the power is inter intermittent. So what do they do at night if the power um, runs out? They, they really depend on having a supply of oxygen tanks. So the company that's supposed to deliver oxygen tanks to them decided during COVID-19 that they weren't going to deliver any oxygen tanks to the res. And, and that has meant that my friend is making 350 mile round trips to collect oxygen tanks for her mom. Um, 
it would be a whole lot more efficient if the company were making around delivering and picking up tanks um, um, you know kind of do a circuit because that she's not the only one who needs right. oxygen um, just just one that personally came to my attention um, but that's just an example of the the type of inequity and the, the type of distances and challenges people face just to get basic needs met. And especially, um, you know, thinking about the COVID-19 messaging around hand washing. Um, and, it's, and it's very, you know, just wash your hands for 20 seconds under, you know, running water. Um, and for many of us, that seems relatively simple. But if you having to have running water takes, you know, all those steps, um, it makes a big difference. And, um, you know, can definitely impact how this, this pandemic um, affects you on a daily life, on a daily basis. Um, I want to switch gears just uh, briefly to another vulnerable population that I know that you also work with closely, which is the homeless population, which is, has its own unique challenges uh, in this situation. Can, so can you tell us a little bit about what you do with that population um, there and then some of the challenges that they have faced and you've been addressing over the past few weeks? Yes, so um, North Country, uh, my, my company, has had uh, a collaboration with Flagstaff Shelter Services for a number of years. We provide primary care services to people experiencing homelessness. We'll take our mobile unit, which is just a little Freightliner van, over to um, the shelter uh, a couple days a week, and our pharmacy will deliver medications and do medication counseling. So, so as COVID-19 erupted, we were able to build on that collaboration. So um, about, I guess it's about six weeks ago now, um, we helped identify the most medically vulnerable folks in the shelter population and were able to transition them to a hotel here in town, um, basically to help them self-isolate more effectively because we knew there was a higher chance they'd get exposed to COVID-19, but um, uh, would be less able, less able to uh, withstand that. Um, and then we stood up surveillance testing for the shelter population and the staff working at the shelter. And um, in our first wave of shelter testing, we uh, diagnosed probably 40 cases of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And we were able to collaborate with the county. The county has been operating a hotel to isolate folks who are COVID-19 positive and experiencing homelessness, maybe not sick enough to be in the hospital, but need to be isolated from the general population. Um, so, so that was very helpful. And then Flag Shelter um, obtained agreements for another hotel to transition the rest of the shelter population um, into, a, into a moteling environment. And um, we did follow-up surveillance testing the next week, knowing that there would be more positives. And right. you know, yes, there were probably about 30, but when we repeated testing last week, we only uncovered five. So the isolation is, is working and we're going to continue surveillance testing, we think every two weeks, that's, the, that's our current plan for, for folks that are asymptomatic. We just know that that population is, is higher risk and, um, and it's been an opportunity to convene a conversation amongst our city manager, the county manager, 
leadership from the hospital, leadership from Flight Shelter, and, and from North Country. And um, just in a shout out to another uh, uh, Reed Scholar, Dora Hughes had an article in the April um, Health Affairs on funding for accountable communities for health. So um, I pitched the idea, well, what if we created a multi-sector partnership to help address housing? I mean, North Country and the shelter have worked on this for a long time, but now there's a lot more appetite in the community. Right. And because we've been able to collaborate effectively, I think we, we should seize it. And, and how can we um, create some more supportive housing for, for folks experiencing homelessness? I think um, I continue to say, you know, silver lining of COVID-19 is all of these uh, innovations and partnerships that are developing out of necessity, and hopefully they will continue. Um, and I also wanted to, to just uh, comment that I think your, uh, kind of the isolation surveillance um, and testing uh, protocol that you put forth for the homeless population has some implications for the population at large. Um, any thoughts on reopening and, and what you've seen in that population and what we should do going forward? So in Arizona, we've had this thing called blitz testing mm -hmm. just about every weekend in May. And the cynical part of me thinks that blitz testing has offered testing to the worried well. Mm. And, and it's been a way to um, reduce the case incidence of COVID-19. Um, you know, I think a lot of countries have used testing effectively. I'm not sure that um, the US is really set up to do that yet. Mm. Um, but I do think that the social distancing has, has been helpful and, and we can see that in a lot of communities. So, so I, I think there's still um, a need to be cautious, um, to be thoughtful about the um, social distancing that we use um, and then be able to test robustly in higher risk populations. Like I wouldn't suggest two week testing for for folks in general, I think I, I just don't think it's very high yield. Um, but for folks that, for a variety of reasons, are at higher risk, I, I think it can make sense. And just to to close, well, you know, it'll be interesting what happens over the next few months because every week is has been different. Um, but for you as an individual, what you know, what has been your biggest struggle over the past couple months? Um, and then tell us what you are optimistic about or what do you hope we learn from this going to the other side? Mm. I would say um, the biggest struggle has been uh, sort of being a sink for other people's emotions. Mm. I, I think a lot of people have been, understandably, very afraid, a little, a little panicky. And um, I think as a leader, you have to have a perspective on crisis and, and think about what you can do. Um, and, you know, as I look around, I, I see so many opportunities. I, I really do. Um, and that's coupled with uh, the personal knowledge of the devastation of mm -hmm. this disease. And, and just the tremendous loss 
um, to, to families. So, you know, not everybody is feeling that. And, and I think um, people can be resentful of uh, the changes we've had to make uh, that are so, that they seem so unnecessary when, when um, the tragedy of COVID-19 has not touched them personally. Right. Um, so I know as I talk to people, I, I try to tell some personal stories. I, t I talk about my next door neighbor, Lorraine, and, and her family, because I think we have to, how do we put a face um, on, on this disease? Um, and uh, so, so I think that's been rather draining um, for me personally. It's been, it's been good, but it's been draining. But an upside is uh, I get to bike to work now because <laughs> I don't have to pick up and drop off my daughter at all sorts of activities. So um, that's actually been kind of great, uh, you know, on a, on a personal level. And I do feel like um, there's been an opportunity in this crisis to see people who perform well and perform collaboratively and and it's opened some doors so you know sometimes you got to kick it down a door right. but it's better if you it's better many times if you can do it gently and and bring people to the fold rather than you know go in a little heavy and um so i'm hopeful that we can continue opening some doors I like it. I think that is a great and um, optimistic way to end. I thank you so much for giving us your time today. And I look forward to seeing all the uh, wonderful leadership things you're going to do in Arizona. Um, you've been doing great work. I enjoy this conversation immensely. Um, and thank you again. Thanks so much, Dr. Fleming. You have a great day.